morning, North Star. Would take your Bibles, go ahead and open them, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, as we resume our study there. And I'll read verses 1 through 7. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer sacrifices and gifts. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See, that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Pray with me. Father, we are eager to understand what it is you have done in your servant, your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be attentive, we would be eager to hear these marvelous truths. We would set aside our fascination with trivial things, small and temporary and earthly things, and look to you. Look to Jesus, our great God and King, to understand what it is He has done for us. And I ask that as we see Him, as we understand what He has done, what He is doing now, that that you, that vision, would transform us from one degree of glory to the next. And I pray these things in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. So, I want to begin this sermon with a question. And this question will kind of unite or give a theme for what we are doing. And that is this. What is going on? What, what really is going on? What is actually happening in the world? This current crisis that we're in shows that we humans have, or we think we have at least, an insatiable desire to know what's really going on. Every day, I hear so many people say things or sending out information with one central claim, this is what's really going on. Every headline or every article or every news outlet has their own spin on things, their own way of seeing truth. And everyone uh, essentially offers that solution to this craving that we all have. I really want to know what's really going on. How serious is the threat or how made up is all of this? You want to know truth. Everyone has their own take 
But everyone is limited because not everyone knows everything directly. We rely on sources, second, third, fourth, fifth, and information. We rely on statistics, conjecture, assumption. We all make guesses. We all try to assure ourselves that our way of seeing the world and understanding what's going on is the right way. But who is really sure? Let me ask you this question so that you can kind of understand where I'm coming from. If, if you had the chance, or if you had the ability to go in and be a part of a confidential meeting with all the world leaders, or maybe the joint chiefs with the executive, or central command, or to go to the G8 seven meeting, wouldn't you eagerly go, even if you had to pay your own way to get there, if you had to buy your own plane ticket and fly, if you got to go to the behind closed doors meeting of the real decision makers in the world, wouldn't you go? Wouldn't you boast later that you had gone? We desire truth. We want to know everything. We want to know really what everything means. Or do we? On the one hand, we're fascinated and compelled to consume so much useless information. All of us have a favorite TV show or a favorite sports team or a favorite game or a favorite novel. And we could tell you whatever that favorite or group of favorite things there are, we could tell you any number of things about that fictional world, that sports team, that TV show. We can give you names. We can tell you certain events within those systems. And none of that's wrong in and of itself. But it shows that we are fascinated and we're compelled to consume information that's not that important. However, God has already revealed to us what's really going on. And he's given us an extremely penetrating vision into the core of his own motivations. What exactly he is up to in the world. We often think it's simple and easy. If someone were to ask you, uh, what is God doing in the world? You might give a short answer. Or quote maybe one or two verses. But I think that is often just an excuse for our laziness. It is so much deeper and more complex and beautiful and wonderful than you think. We admire books and stories and shows and sports because of their intricacy. Yet we often close off our minds to the more mature teachings of Christ. Because often our flesh puts theology at odds or in opposition to love. That's a lie. If you love the Lord, you will want to know more about all of this. About what He is really doing. Why He is really doing it. What all of it means. There's a deception also of making everything practical. 
Well, that's really interesting and fascinating, and maybe it's difficult to understand, and it's there in the Bible, but it really doesn't have any practical application, does it? you just take that analogy and apply it to your relationship, you'll see how wrong that is to think that way. Some of the most intimate conversations you can have with your spouse or your best friend have no practical implications. They're just interesting things about the way they think, really nuanced things about their likes and dislikes that may never come up in a practical situation that would change whether or not you do A, B, or C. But if you were to say to them, "Eh, that's not really practical, I don't want to hear about that, how would that go? Would you claim to really love them? So God tells us what's going on. He builds for us in the Bible a massive worldview. And it's the only right lens through which to view the world. And all of human history. And the meaning and destiny of mankind. This passage this morning is a massive piece. So you've got to ask yourself this question. Do I really want to know? Do I really want to know what's going on? Do you really want to know the Lord? Do you really want to pursue the deeper things, the more mature teachings of Christ? Will you come with me? So here we are in verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. This this is the central argument of this passage. And this is what the author says. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This phrase, now the point in what we are saying, it could be translated something like this. The crowning affirmation of what we are saying. We discussed that at length last week. But it, it should be a reminder to you of all the glories of what it means that Jesus is himself your high priest. This is what God is doing. And just saying it this way, as the author does in verses 1 and 2, shows, and it it, it might even expose for you how truly uninterested we are in real truth. We love true things about trivial subjects. But often, we turn away from glorious things because we can't, it it takes maybe too much energy, takes too much study on our our part to really understand what's going on. But here's the point, and this is the crowning affirmation of this entire argument. You have such a high priest. If you are in Christ, he is yours. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek who is also the son of David, who will rule forever, fulfilling God's promise. He is divine and more glorious than any human priest, yet one who is near, who took on flesh and walked among us. He's a ruler like Melchizedek, never beginning, never ending, more ancient, but newer at the same time. He's not fragile. He's not at risk to be shut down due to a pandemic. 
He is immediately accessible, always. And He is always qualified and perfect to minister on your behalf, which you need because you can't be your own priest. And so significant and so different is His ministry that it requires the removal of the Old Covenant and the establishment of a New Covenant. And we have Him now. Not one day in the future. And not in some mystical sense that needs another human mediator to help us. If you are in Christ at all, He is your High Priest. He's not one who ministers within the confines of a religion, but he is himself the summation of the entire Christian religion. His position is not in question. He will forever be this great high priest. He is one with the Father, and the Father himself works to subject all his enemies to him. He never stops, he never tires in his ministry to the Father on our behalf and on the Father's behalf to us. He is the only one qualified to walk in that holy place. Not once a year and not with great peril, but always and with great joy. He's eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. All of that power and magnitude is concentrated on His ministry to and care for the church. He is Himself the focal point of our worship. Ministers in the eternal, heavenly, holy place created by God. Do you want to know what's really going on? What is really going on in the world? Do you really want to know what the most important being who could ever exist is doing and working towards and exerting all His divine energy to accomplish? It is mainly this, the preeminence of Jesus Christ as the great high priest of his people forever. In every sermon I preach, I feel somewhat like an artist, not that I'm being very artistic, but if you talk to artists or you read about different artists who have tried to paint pictures, it's almost like they, with certain scenes or persons or concepts, they try over and over and over and over and over again to get it right. And some of their best works is from their attempt to try and get a certain concept or, or, or view or, or scene right. So there's frustration that they can't fully describe or give beauty to and voice to this vision that they have. And, and in preaching, it's much more serious than that. Because the one I'm trying to get you to see is Jesus Christ, this preeminent one. Even as I read through all these glorious things, I feel like it's just not enough. It's not right. It's not, it's not together enough. It's not beautiful enough to explain who this one is. We often trivialize Christ in so many ways. So preaching is often needed in our lives to to get our eyes, the eyes of our heart, back on Jesus Christ Himself so that we can see Him. I want you to see the real Christ, which you can do with the Word of God and the eyes of faith by the Spirit. 
immediately, this kind of a side note, but this, this should show you part of the folly of the cross, the folly of preaching. This, this isn't you know, some kind of life coaching session where I'm trying to get you all to be better people. I want you to see Jesus. That's what preaching is about. And when, even when we're preaching the gospel to non-believers, the, the goal is to help them see Jesus. To see Him in all His glory, His beauty. And this text helps us immensely. And the way the author helps us see the true Jesus is to establish contrasts. point emphasized, as one of the commentators I, I read uh, has said, is that the possibility of access to God through a Levitical and earthly arrangement no longer exists because of their intrinsic inadequacy. Access, meaning access to God, is possible only through the ministering priest who serves in the heavenly sanctuary. Meaning that You can't have any access to God at all except by His Son, Jesus Christ. So here's the proof. The proof that Jesus is superior. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, he's already mentioned this idea in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And this is a building block to the crescendo of the entire argument in chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. This verse, I think, begs the question, what exactly did Christ offer for sins. From chapter 9, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He waits unfold that theme in full. The point here is, I think, to show some level of continuity. So here, here's the point. The reason why verse 3 exists, I think, so let's, let's just read it again. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. So there's got to be some continuity between the Levitical priesthood under the Old Covenant, and the new eternal priesthood of Christ. If they had nothing in common, or the idea of needing a priest is not established, and it's not established as something fundamental in the way God works, then it, would mean, it wouldn't mean so much to say that the Levitical priesthood foreshadowed the priesthood of Christ. So I think the author is saying here they both offer gifts because this theme, this idea of a priest on behalf of the people offering something to God for sins is something that is true of both of them. So there has to be some level of continuity between the foreshadowing and the reality. It's just like a good preview of a movie. 
It shows you enough of what the real thing is or what it's going to be, but is different enough so that it doesn't give too much away. We've all, I'm sure we've all seen previews of movies that have just given far too much away. You know exactly what the plot is. You know exactly how it's going to end just based on the preview. Or you watch a preview and you think you know what you're getting into when you go see the movie and it's nothing like the preview. This is the idea here. That the Levitical priesthood, there there is some level of sameness. that, That you can look at the Levitical priesthood in the Old Covenant and see themes and see ideas that were already there that give us an idea of what the reality, the eternal reality in Christ is going to be. Verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on this mountain. Now, I said earlier that the way that the author proves his point that Jesus Christ is superior and his priesthood is superior and his ministry is superior than all of that that was under the old covenant or the first covenant is by way of contrast. So I see in this passage at least uh, five contrasts. The, The first one I see here is, on earth versus heavenly. So you see that in uh, verse 4, if he were on earth. And then in verse 5, the heavenly things. So the under the old covenant, all of the ministry that took place, everything that had to do with corporate worship took place on earth. And the people brought their sacrifices and they offered them to God, but all of that took place on earth. But Christ's ministry takes place in the heavenly places. It's all in heaven, in the the eternal realm, the very presence of God. Also, the second contrast, I think, here is plural versus singular. We've discussed this before, but you'll see it here. If he were on earth, which we'll get to in a minute, he would not be a priest, singular, at all, since there are priests, plural, who offer gifts. So the idea here is that Jesus is one singular priest, and under the Old Covenant there were multiple priests. And we, we looked at this earlier in Hebrews, it's because of death. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. The third contrast you see is that you have gifts according to the law versus what? And I think this is more hinted at uh, because of verse 3 where he's going to in chapter 9, gifts according to the law versus the gift of himself. So under the old covenant and the the foreshadowing that, that gave us an image of what was to come in Christ, they offered gifts that were according to the law that was given them by Moses. Bulls, goats, rams, all these different things that they could offer for atonement. But Jesus offers himself. So So it's not just that he is a greater priest, it's that his gift is better than all the gifts of the Old Covenant put together. The fourth contrast you see in this passage is that you have a copy or shadow or pattern versus the reality. Copy, a shadow, pattern versus reality. 
And there's actually, if you see, if you understand what's being said here, there's actually two degrees of separation. So you have the heavenly idea or the, the, the holy place in heaven, and then God shows Moses a copy of that or a shadow of that or a pattern of that, and then Moses makes the tabernacle according to the pattern that he saw. So it's two degrees of separation from the real thing. But Christ ministers in the real place, the original. Then the last contrast in these verses is built by Moses versus built by God. And this this draws from verses 1 and 2 as well. Moses is the one who erected the tent, the tabernacle in the Old Covenant. But God is the one who, maybe in a sense before time even began, built this heavenly, holy place. So what's really going on here? There is a heavenly sanctuary. A heavenly, holy place. It is designed and built by God and perhaps even predates the creation of the world. Outside of time. This maybe gives some insight into what it means when John says in the Revelation to John, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, that there was, in a sense, a heavenly, holy place, a holy of holies. These concepts of priesthood and sacrifice and atonement and offering and blood and death existed before even creation. All of redemptive history is bringing us to God the Father through the appointment of Jesus as the ministering high priest in that holy place. That all of God's energy, all of His creative and redemptive power is working to bring you to that place in Christ. There is something more solid Timeless in the character of God itself that makes the themes of sacrifice, atonement, redemption, mediation, forgiveness, etc. Timeless. These are not themes in God's character that just happen to be there because we sin. You read closely in Ephesians 1, you see that the whole point of creation was to display the glory of God's grace. All of these are aspects of God's grace or mercy. It's not pushing the thought too far to say that creation itself exists to show these grand themes of God's mercy in the person of Christ. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So this, this word but here is a contrast to the old way. It's, it's, it's a logical necessity. This, this is a logical argument. So because the old way, the old covenant, the first covenant was de- designed intentionally to have impermanence, meaning it was designed not to be permanent. It means it is logical, logically necessary that Christ's ministry is better or more excellent. 
So um, here's a, just a, an aside somewhat for uh, literary purposes. The, the Greek here actually doesn't contain the word Christ. It, it says, but as it is he, and we all know who he's talking about. The last time, though, that the author of Hebrews has mentioned Christ is chapter 6, verse 1. And you have to go back to 6.22 to see the last mention of the name Jesus. And that's absent until you get to chapter 9. I want you to hear this this crashing uh, crescendo that that comes with these verses. Chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. It's dramatic. So he's, he, he will have gone for about three chapters without mentioning the name Christ, or the title Christ, and then mentions it again to show us how dramatic it is that Jesus is the one who has taken this place in the Holy of Holies. And it shows us really that chapters 6 through 10 is just one extended argument. And we've taken a few breaks in the middle of this. But the point should not be lost in this. Jesus is the great high priest of a better covenant. And it's better than the old. That's also added. It's not in the original Greek, but it's added for clarity. It literally says something like this. This is what the verse, rough translation here. As it is, he has attained a more excellent ministry owing to the fact that he is the mediator of the better covenant, which is drawn up on better promises. So let's ask some questions. Some questions I think we could ask of this text. More excellent than what ministry? The author is saying that his ministry is more excellent. More excellent than what? Precisely the ministry of the priests under the old covenant. This is from William Lang. The truth is that the sacrificial ministry of the Levitical priests foreshadowed only superficially the definitive priestly ministry of Christ in his death and entrance into the presence of God. So it's a more excellent ministry, mainly because everything under the first covenant was foreshadowed or was a pattern or a copy. It was meant, it was meant to give an idea of what's coming in God's final Ministering priest, Jesus. A better covenant than what? This is the second question. A better covenant than what? Better than the first covenant under which the people received the law. What was that covenant? In a nutshell, you could say it this way. The covenant was, keep my law and you will live. From Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. It's quoted by Paul in Galatians to kind of summarize the entire first covenant. As we'll see next week, the new covenant is is 
on the one hand, very similar in the sense that we must still obey God, but it, but it is entirely new and it, it's different and better because the promises are better. So what better promises? The idea here is that the, the covenant itself is drawn up or built or established on better promises. So this could be hearkening back to chapter 7 where he says, but the word of the oath, meaning God's oath, came later than the law. And it's referring to two oaths God made, one to Abraham and one to David. So these are before the law, looking and, and looking to after the law. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, a singular offspring, as Paul underscores in Galatians 3.16. We don't have time to, to get into that at length. Jesus is also the son of David, who would be priest forever from Psalm 110, verse 4. So before the author gets into anything about the new covenant specifically, he shows why there even needs to be one. And it was not that God failed in the first covenant and had to try again with the second covenant. That would give us no hope. It's that even while the covenant was made with the people of Israel, there were promises that God had made that were bigger, grander, and more eternal than that first covenant could hold. Even built within the old covenant are these promises that those shadows, those copies, those patterns can't properly hold. This is how the old saints were saved. It was not through works. Paul makes that very clear. No one will be justified in God's sight through works. And the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It's not that it once took away sins, and now it doesn't because Christ has come. It never could take away sins. So how were the old saints under the first covenant saved? It was not through works, but trusting in God, who had shown clearly that there was something yet to come. And this is why Jesus has an argument against the Pharisees and Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? You should have seen, you should have known that there would be something better coming. It's exactly how David speaks. And probably also he's referring to the fact, he's referencing that the promises of the new covenant are much better than the old promises or the promises of the old covenant. They are better promises. For the first covenant, really, all of the promises were tied up with the land, for the most part. The idea was, if you are faithful to me, if you keep my statutes, you will live in the land that I swore to to your forefathers, and you will be prosperous. For the second covenant, all of those promises are wrapped up in knowing God himself. We'll see the nature of all those better promises next week. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the Bible actually gives us different words than, you know, we, we typically summarize it this way, Old Testament, New Testament, that's, that's from the ideas of 
the last will and testament of a person. Um, it, it has the idea of a contract or an agreement or a promise or a commitment. But the way the Bible really terms it is first covenant, second covenant. So I'm not saying you should mark it out in your Bible to say first covenant, second covenant instead of Old Testament, New Testament. But that's, that's more biblical language here. First covenant, second covenant. And this, this verse, verse 7, says something that is very important for us to see and understand. There's fault with the first covenant. This whole argument is built on the idea that it does have fault. If it were faultless, there would have been no occasion or no need to look for a second covenant. If it were perfect, once established, and able to deal with sins, and able to deal with unbelief, then we wouldn't need a second so let's ask this question. Where is the fault? What is the fault in the first covenant? Obviously, there is some fault with the people. There is the problem of human unbelief. Human unbelief is a major problem throughout both covenants or both testaments. One of the examples I've used in the past is King Solomon. God literally spoke to him twice, gave him more wisdom than any human person, and gave him an ideal situation. And yet, by the end of his life, he is building temples to false gods and paying the salaries of those priests. Human unbelief is a staggering problem. That's part of the inadequacy of the Old Covenant. It couldn't deal with that. But... The text here is saying that there is actual fault or inadequacy in the first covenant itself. That's not just because humans are fallen, sinful, cursed, and prone to unbelief, doubting God. But there is fault or inadequacy in the second covenant, or in the first covenant rather, precisely because it points to a second the, the idea would be this. If, if, you, if you got a, let's, let's say you, you bought a new vehicle. You've got a loan on that vehicle, and the idea is I've got a great interest rate, and I'm going to uh, pay this out and pay off this vehicle. Or um, you've got a new job offer, and you've got a work contract with them, but there's language in that loan agreement or that work contract that says only valid until second only valid until the second one comes, then there is a built-in inadequacy in it. It's not that it's, it's like evil or bad. It's that it is intentionally looking to something else. And so the first covenant was only valid until the coming of the second in the person of Christ. So here's a question. This is an honest question. For those of us who are in Christ, we are under the second covenant. So why should we spend any time thinking about or figuring out this grand conversion from the first covenant to the second? Why should we spend any time thinking about that? If we're only under the second and we've never been under the first, why should we spend time thinking about that? Why should we spend time looking at the history of it? It's just, if it's, is it just a fascinating theological conversation? 
figuring out how God has done this? Shouldn't we just focus on the better promises of the second covenant? We're going to do that next week, but why have we spent an entire sermon on this conversion, as it were? What God is really doing, what's really going on in human history, this this grand movement from the first covenant to the second. And I think it's important at this point to remember why the author is writing Hebrews in the first place. He is concerned that the people he is writing to who are professing to be believers and followers of Christ will fall away. He is afraid that their professions might in fact be false. He's afraid that due to temptation and trial and persecution, they will abandon Christ that they will not hold fast, that they will be led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is how the author answers that. Not by giving them a new list of things to do, do's and don'ts and and spiritual disciplines. He does get to that. But the heart, the meat and potatoes of this letter is helping us understand what God has done. Not just in Christ but what he has done in Christ as a result of this grand history of redemption that began before the law was given. So, let's try to apply this. Answer some questions. How how should this change things for us? There there is a temptation in trying to make everything practical, like I said at the beginning, or, or everything in application. But there are real things we are supposed to take from this. Number one, God never, ever intended and never, ever will save on the basis of works. It's always by faith. And that's the reason chapter 11 exists in this letter. It's not just like a hall of fame or a hall of faith. Oh, here's all these great people. Think about them. It's showing that even from the beginning, it was by faith. Never been by works. Faith, namely, that God would make good on His promises. Because He had already made good on His promises. And for us, it's exactly the same. Faith that God will make good on His promises because He has made good on His promises. You can have a relationship with God, a way of thinking about Him, that is all works up. God's mad. I try to clean up my life. God's more happy with me. I'm more happy with myself. God has me on planet earth so that I do good things and make him happy. If I do bad things, he'll be sad. God will accept me. God will love me more the more I do that is good and honors him. Versus faith in Christ. It's all works. That's all merit-based on your own life. It's always through faith in Christ, looking to God's faithfulness as the basis on which you relate to Him, knowing that you are fully accepted in Christ. Conversion isn't so much about you accepting Jesus, it's that you believe that God in Christ has accepted you. And that, that it's not at risk of going away because Christ's is the one who has earned that acceptance, not you. Number two, under the heading of application, 
Do you have this kind of faith in Christ? Just believing in God does you no good. Just believing that Jesus was a real person does you no good. Just believing that He was in some sense the Son of God, that does you no good either. Just believing that God will help you and guide you and praying to Him that He would help does you no good. You must entrust yourself to Christ alone. That Jesus is the only one who has made good on God's promises and He will make good on all of God's promises yet to be fulfilled. And from that comes a love and a desire to emulate and to follow His example everything else. If you don't have that kind of faith in Christ, where you have entrusted yourself to Him, that He is your hope and trust, then you must repent today. There's no ten-step or five-step or three-step process. Turn from relying on yourself and your flesh and your strength and trust in Christ alone. Number three, why should I trust in Christ alone? Because, and here's what I've been trying to show and illustrate this entire time that we've been looking at Christ as our high priest, because Christ's sacrifice is the once-for-all time sacrifice that earns Him the right to be the only high priest forever in the presence of God. This is what this, this means. This is actually the, the real implication of understanding that Jesus is the high priest in the heavenly holy of holies, that there has only really been ever in all of creation one real sacrifice. Everything else is shadow and copy and emulation. The death of Christ on your behalf is the only sacrifice that could ever take place. The only real one. That's why you must trust in Him alone. Because there's no other sacrifice. There's nothing else that is acceptable to God. Your life does not earn God's love. Even the fervency or intensity of your belief does not earn God's love or forgiveness. Only Christ's offering Himself for sins has earned the love and forgiveness of God to you forever. There has only ever been one acceptable sacrifice. The only thing God accepts from you is faith. Total trust in His Son. So He's not impressed. He's not impressed by your work. He's not impressed by your life. He only accepts and only eagerly receives your trust, your faith in His Son. Think of it this way. Not even Christ's perfect life without His death, without His offering Himself, earned Him the entrance into the most holy place. He would not be priest forever unless he had something to offer. And he offered himself the only acceptable gift. 
So if not even Christ's perfect life without his sacrificial death could earn him that office and and receive from God all the blessing that he then dispenses to the world and to his people, then your life can't and won't ever earn God's favor. Jesus can't bring many sons to glory unless he has something to offer for sins. Something to offer for our need for righteousness. Since it is only and always the offering of himself, there is nothing else that God will accept from you. Trust in him. Jesus is my hope and trust because God accepts nothing else. Christ, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, who has become for us salvation, redemption, sanctification, and all the rest. Number four, how often do you think about these realities? This grand conversion from the first covenant of shadows and patterns and copies and this foreshadowing of what's to come and, and how God planted all that in there and and gave the language and the promises that that caused the need for the coming of the second covenant? How often do we think about these things? Do you really care about what's really going on in the world and what the meaning of human history really is? You might need to begin to do some hard reading. You might have a lot of things that you read or listen to. But it might be time for you, even as the author of Hebrews says, to leave the elementary teachings of Christ. Not that they're wrong, they're just elementary. And press on to maturity. These are the mature things. I've put some suggestions for reading in the handout if you have that. If you need any more suggestions or you don't have that, just email me. Talk to me. Learn to be an exegete. Get a serious study Bible. Read good books by dead people. There might be a little bit of pushback. Well, we can just read the Bible, right? We should just read the Bible. Yes, you should. But not just the Bible. And there's a big reason for that. Um, You come to the Bible with your preconceptions. You come to the Bible with the lens of your world, the lens of your life, the lens of your experience. And when you read good, solid, orthodox authors. They show you what you've missed. They show you what you've ignored. They show you what you willfully didn't listen to. So you need help. We all have sin and ignorance and errors, and so we need help so that we can clearly access the Bible. You really want to know what's going on? want to know the truth? This is it. Number five. We are so quick. How quick we are to forget. You must set your mind on things above. Do you really know who you are? Do you understand where your name is written? You know where your worth, your identity is grounded? 
Do you understand what's really important in this life? You know what immense blessing God has given you. You know what great lengths God has gone to to bring you to Himself. Not just isolated in the cross, but throughout all human history, building to this grand crescendo in glory. Do you know what Christ is doing for you right now? Do you understand that the whole flow of God's redemptive plan in history is culminating in the revealing of the sons of God? That's you and me. Do you know why you're still on planet Earth? Do you understand what Christ is doing now by His Spirit to prepare you for this very thing? Are you spending each day with a mindset for eternity? Set your mind on things above, the place where Christ is seated, where He is ministering even now on your behalf. Lastly, this is not a pep talk. Sermons are not, especially sermons over difficult text or or meaty texts like this, is not a way to help us be a better church or convince each of you just to try harder so that we can really be a great church. Not like a CEO or boss or coach giving you a motivational speech about how we can do great things if we just stick to the plan. No. I've had people ask me, maybe I should have a better answer at this, but what, what's your five-year, ten-year vision for the church? I, I don't know. But I have five and ten-year vision and 15 million and 20 trillion-year visions for you. I want you to know Christ. I want you to see Him. I want you to be transformed by seeing Him into His image. Every time we come here and when I preach from the Word, I am trying to pull back the very veil of the most holy place in heaven itself so that you might see Him and love Him and desire Him above all things. To have Him and to be like Him forever. See what's really going on in the world? Father, we ask that you would not let us forget, even as we have looked into the deep things of God, even as it were, into your mind, into the heavenly places where Christ even walks now, ministering, praying, and offering always his blood on our behalf to you, Father. I pray that that our minds would stay there. That each morning as we renew our fervor for you and our desire to know you, that you would work by your Spirit to put our minds back there. We would understand there is no danger in being too heavenly minded. There is only danger. Pray for those who maybe responded negatively or did 
understand or didn't want to understand what we've talked about this morning, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, calm them, help them understand what it is you're saying about yourself and the glory that is revealed of Christ in you. We pray these things in